Well, the last few weeks, we've been taking time to look at this concept of faith in action. The idea is basically pretty simple. If we believe in the Lord, if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe that he died on that cross, that he rose from the dead, that he's given us forgiveness of sins and the opportunity of life everlasting, if we believe in the Holy Spirit, that he indwells us, that he is operating in and through us, then what will it look like in practice? What will it look like when these beliefs work through us into action? So faith in action. And we've looked at a couple of different figures so far in the Old Testament. So we looked at Jonah, who's kind of the anti-hero of faith in the Bible. He's a guy who essentially tried to do everything he could to get away from God, and God still used him to do incredible and mighty things. We looked at Ruth, who had incredible faith. She was committed and faithful to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and she was committed to Naomi's God, the God of Israel, and how God blessed her. We didn't talk about it, but I was just reflecting just last night. Man, Naomi must have been an incredible woman to inspire that kind of confidence in Ruth. Uh, You know, how many of us, uh, you don't don't raise hands, (laughs) would leave our country, our our home, our people, our God for our mother-in-law? That, that's a, she must have been amazing, you know? Uh, that's not the standard that you would see. And then we looked at, uh, the last couple of weeks, the book of Daniel. We looked at the life of Daniel, Shadrach, Abishak, and Abednego, and how they were consistently faithful to the Lord in the little daily things and in the big things. And they were willing to put God first and foremost and out in the public, even when it was dangerous and even when it was difficult. And today, we're going to turn our attention to the book of Acts, but specifically we're going to focus on the person of Peter. Peter, if you don't remember, is one of those disciples and eventually apostles of Jesus Christ. Peter was that fisherman that when Jesus was in Galilee doing his early ministry, he called out and he said, Peter, come and follow me. And Peter threw his nets on the ground and went to follow Jesus. And Peter's kind of a natural leader. He likes to take charge, but What you see early in his life is that he's a bumbling leader. He's the guy who takes charge when he shouldn't be, right? This is the guy when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, and Jesus knows that he's going to his death for the salvation of the world. And Peter says, no, you can't die. You can't go to the cross. And Jesus famously says to him, get behind me, Satan. You know, this is the guy who whenever uh, the opportunity affords itself, he will open his mouth and insert his foot, right? He's... He's my kind of guy, actually. I like the guy. This is, this is the kind of person that Peter was, and we're going to look at the kind of person that Peter becomes. And it's interesting to note that it's not just after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead that Peter becomes who he becomes, but we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in this. So in the Gospel of Luke, which is uh, the same author as the book of Acts, Luke tells the story of Jesus Christ. And that's why he writes that gospel. And in the story of Luke and the story of Jesus Christ in Luke, uh, at the end of the story, we see Jesus is put to death on the cross, that he's buried on a Friday, and then on a Sunday morning, he's raised to life on the third day, that he uh, is affirmed by God to be an acceptable sacrifice, and by his resurrection displays power over death, sin, and darkness. And then Luke, unlike Matthew, kind of leaves the story there because he's now writing the book of Acts. So in the first chapter of Acts, Luke kind of picks up the story where it left off. And he says, hey, you know that I wrote you, Theophilus. This is a guy that he was writing to. Uh, You know that I wrote to you about what happened when Jesus died, when he was raised from the dead. But after this, he presented himself to a lot of people, and he gave the disciples a commission. And We're going to just look in verse 4 of chapter 1 of Acts, and we're going to move through a couple of different chapters today. And we're going to do it kind of quickly. So in verse 4 of Acts 1, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, meaning Jesus, and the them as the disciples, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And what they mean with that question is, God, are you now, uh, Jesus, are you now going to overthrow the Roman government? Are you now going to, uh, to put a king back on the throne, a real king back on the throne in Israel? Are we going to see Israel enter this 
a political, military, and, and spiritual renaissance that we've been waiting for, longing for, praying for, that we expected the Messiah to bring. And Jesus responds, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he says, it's going to start right here at home, and it's going to spread out to the rest of the world. That's going to be your job. So he gives them this commission. And they go through this process of uh, replacing one of the disciples because you may remember Judas betrayed Jesus and he ended up uh, taking his own life in despair and guilt and shame over what had happened. And so they go through that process. And then they go and they wait because that's what Jesus told them to do. So there they are waiting and we're going to look in chapter 2 now of the book of Acts. And you kind of get this impression that at this point, the apostles have and the disciples, they have not started any kind of mission at this point. They haven't gone out to preach about Jesus. They haven't gone out into the temple courts or into the, into the streets and going door to door and sharing the gospel. What they've done is they've put themselves, hold themselves up, if you will, in a room and they're just waiting, waiting for the promise that Jesus had given them. And if you recall in the book of John, different author, but same story of the life of Jesus, Jesus tells the, the disciples, he says, if I don't leave you, then the other cannot come. But I'm sending you another one like myself. Remember, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, each God. Uh, and he says, I'm sending you another like me, another counselor, another comforter. Right? And this is the promised Holy Spirit. So in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we read this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, you have to understand that Pentecost is the day in the Old Testament where God gives the law on Mount Sinai. And if you remember that story, the, uh, uh, God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus. They come out of Egypt, they enter this journey in the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai, and that's where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And we all, if you've seen those old movies, you have that image of Moses coming down the mountain with the tablets, right? And inscribed on the tablets are the Ten Commandments. And on that day, when they were at the mountain, God showed up with a mighty wind and earthquake and thunder and lightning, fire from heaven, right? And here's this gift to the people that would essentially establish the nation of Israel as a people under the covenant that God made with them through these Ten Commandments. So then, on this day of Pentecost, after the resurrection of Jesus, and after He's ascended into heaven to be with God, God establishes this new covenant. And so there's uh, wind, and you know it doesn't say earthquakes, but this fire comes down. And just like God give, gave the people of Israel these Ten Commandments to establish a covenant... God gave the people of Christ the Holy Spirit to establish a covenant. And this is the promised covenant that we read about in multiple places in the Old Testament. This is what the disciples, more than a political and military renaissance, should have been looking for, is this new covenant where God said that he would write his law not on tablets, but on our hearts. And so before this moment, it's just kind of weird to think about, but Jesus had been raised from the dead. People had seen him. They had put their trust in him. But the new covenant had not started yet. It had not begun at this point. No one had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit the way that it began right here. You see, in the Old Testament, God would place his spirit on people for power, for capacity, for insight and understanding. But then he could remove his Holy Spirit from those people. Do you remember the first king of Israel? His name was Saul. 
Saul was given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then when God no longer found him pleasing, when he no longer submitted his leadership and rulership and kingship to God in heaven, God took his Holy Spirit away and he placed it on David. And then you may recall there was a moment where David sinned and he wrote this very famous psalm and he said, he says, uh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And David's not thinking about losing his salvation. He's thinking about losing his kingship. That the same thing that happened to Saul would happen to David because the gifting of the Spirit in those days was a, in a sense, a temporary gifting, a temporary uh, placing of the Holy Spirit. But in Jesus Christ, for the first time in history, at this moment on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to live in and dwell in. We say indwelt. He dwells in the people of Christ. This is the same Holy Spirit that you have in you today if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. This is the same Holy Spirit that empowers you when you step out of these four walls and go out into that world to be a faithful witness for Jesus. This is the same Holy Spirit that is the seal of your salvation and the guardian of your heart in Christ Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit that comes down. And it says in verse 5, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together. What sound did they hear? Well, they heard these disciples, and there uh, were, there were you know, like 120 of them, all speaking in different languages. It must have sounded like what Beth was, I, I imagine, in the throne room in heaven, all these tribes and tongues and nations and languages all glorifying the Lord, all speaking at the same time in their tongue that God had given them. And what a beautiful sound that is. It can be kind of crazy, but it's beautiful too. And so they, they were amazed because each one heard them or heard their own language being spoken. Again, these are Jews from all over the world and they're all hearing their own language being spoken by these essentially Galilean and and, and Jerusalem Jews who typically would just speak Aramaic. Maybe they knew some Greek. Maybe they knew some Hebrew. But here they are speaking all the tongues of the world. So they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Somehow we made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Like, when was the last time you got drunk and could all of a sudden speak additional languages? Anyone? No one wants to admit they got drunk, right? Is that what's going on here? I, I, we'll, we'll leave that one there. But Peter stood up with the 11, the other 11 apostles, and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now, this is the moment where Peter, in the Bible, takes charge and does not insert his foot into his mouth. This is the moment where Peter steps up and is faithful without stumbling on his own uh, uh, whatever it is, that, that bumblingness, that his own, his own over-eagerness, his own over-excitement, that he can't contain himself. You know, this is the first time that Peter stands up to become the man that he was meant to be, that God created him to be. Because this is the first time Peter stands up where he has the Holy Spirit. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. Some of you are laughing because you're thinking, I know people who are drunk at nine in the morning, but these men were not drunk at nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What Peter's doing is he's talking about actually this incredibly long span of time as if it's just this one event, which is the last days. 
And folks, I've heard a lot of you and I've heard a lot of other people ask recently or comment recently, hey, maybe Jesus is coming back soon. This feels like the last days, right? Have you, have you felt that way? Have you wondered about that? Well, the truth is we are in the last days and we've been in the last days since that day. That day was the beginning of the last days. And from that day to this and from this day going forward, any day could be the appointed time for God to bring things to a close. Praise to God. Praise the Lord. That's, that's a wonderful thing. But he's talking about in the last days, the Spirit of God will be poured out on the people of God and it will usher in the culmination and fulfillment of God's promises to the world. This is a wonderful thing. So that's how Peter sets up what he's about to say. Fellow Israelites, this is verse 22 of chapter 2. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Peter's saying, look, Jesus had a message, and you know his message is true because God did all these miracles through him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This was not an accident. This was not out of Jesus' control, out of God's control, out of the Spirit's control. The angels were not asleep on their watch. This was God's intention from the beginning. And you, he says to the people, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with the joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. David had this hope. Now, in the context of this psalm, David's saying that he's fearing for his life, but he knows God's not going to let him die. Right? So that's the immediate application of this psalm. David is being harassed. He's being, uh, he's being uh, chased. He's being pursued by his enemies. And David says, God, I know you're not going to let me die right now. You're not going to let my enemies overcome me. But he did die. And he was buried. And he says, you, you know, his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. So what Peter's saying, and what we know of Scripture, is that there's always a greater fulfillment of the promises of God than the ones that we've seen. Guys, we see so many fulfilled promises of God, right? We see miracles. We see God's faithfulness. We see God come through for us. We get what we need at the moment we need it way too often for our own comfort. But there's always a greater fulfillment of those promises, and that greater fulfillment is in Jesus. So David was talking about himself, but in the spirit, he was talking about the Christ. And so he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What a great question. What a great question. You know, and I can't help but wonder if any of our hearts right now are being pricked. If any of our hearts right now are beginning to wonder... What should I do? What should I do in response to this message? What should I do in response to this claim? How do I respond to this truth? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the very first day of the church, the day the church is born, there's 120 people in an upper room. The Holy Spirit comes down like flames of fire, like tongues of fire, rests on their heads. I'm honestly, if you've ever seen those old Highlander movies, I'm just imagining this process where like lightning comes down and they're like, ah, you know, and what what must that have felt like? And then immediately, their initial response is, we got to tell people. We got to tell people. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, they go out and they preach the gospel. And it's not just Peter, it's the others too. And everyone's hearing them in their own language. And so it's not just the super apostles who go out and preach the gospel, but it's all 120 of them who go out and with this miraculous gift to speak in languages that they don't even know. They preach the truth of Jesus Christ to the crowds, to the masses. And on day one of the church, it goes from 120 to 3,120. Anyone want to work out that percentage? Do you know there's magazines every year that put out fastest growing churches in America? Well, I don't know that any church has ever grown as fast as that. It's amazing. Peter and all of the disciples, all 120, their initial reaction when they are filled with the Holy Spirit is to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. You know, there's a couple of um, other passages I want to look at that really exemplify the exact same thing. You know, in, in, the, in Acts 3, um, Peter heals this lame beggar. He heals, he heals a guy who can't walk. And everyone's in an uproar over it. And actually, uh, Sonia's sister, a while back, when we were still on Zoom, she preached a, a great sermon about this passage. So if you want to hear about that, you can just go on our website and get that sermon. Uh, but what happens afterwards is, is the, essentially there's this uproar at the temple. And so whenever there's an uproar at the temple, by the way, the temple is massive. The temple is huge. And there's all these courtyards and places in and out where people can be. So it has to have been a pretty big uproar. But the people in charge get wind of it, and they're like, all right, we're going to put a stop to this. And so the, the, basically the, the Sadducees, uh, the, the leaders in the temple and the authorities that are there, they arrest Peter and they arrest John for being rabble-rousers. So in, verse four, in chapter 4, we get this. Uh, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Very interesting question. Uh, they're kind of trying to figure out, how in the world did you heal this guy who couldn't walk? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, there it is again, Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. By the way, <laughs> this wouldn't fit on the modern theory of how you win over your enemies, okay? You don't say... Oh, I did this by Jesus Christ. You know, the guy that you killed, but who God raised from the dead. Peter is not afraid. Now, Peter was never afraid. 
right? Peter was the guy who had, he was fearless. Uh, he's the guy, he was a fisherman. He could go out in the water and there could be a storm brewing and he would just tough it out. Or he could be in a situation where the God of the universe is telling him he has a plan and Peter's like, really bad plan, Jesus. That's who Peter is. So he's not afraid to ruffle feathers. He's not afraid to speak his mind. But what we see here is that Peter has gone from a guy who just ruffles feathers to a guy who can, can persuasively and effectively communicate the deep, powerful truths of the gospel even to those who are opposed to it. So here's what he says. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. That's also from the Psalms. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. By the way, this verse speaks to a very big controversy in the modern church, in the modern uh, uh, visible community of God on earth. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Are there other names under heaven by which we can be saved? Are there other, do other religions all basically teach the same thing? I think Peter pretty much dealt with that about 2,000 years ago. They were not unaware of other religions. In fact, we just heard about people who were there from all around the world. And he says, look, there's no other way except through Jesus. And look, how look at their response. And I was taught to memorize this as a kid uh, as an encouragement when we go out or when we have opportunity to share the gospel with someone. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So here I am, I'm a schooled man, okay? I'm still pretty ordinary, but I'm a schooled guy. I've spent years studying this. I've spent years studying theology, philosophy of religion, history. Uh, I have, as you know, a master's degree in these things. But I want to tell you something. I don't think I've learned anything in all those years of study that has made me more effective in sharing the gospel than what I learned when I was 13. When I was 13, I learned that Jesus is God, that he died for my sins, that because of my sins, I had no hope for salvation because God is holy and I am not. And that everything that I did to try to make myself better often backfired and made things worse. But Jesus was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and that he was the sacrifice we needed, not only to have relationship with God, but again, to receive that Holy Spirit and be empowered for ministry. And the primary ministry is to make the gospel manifest. And what I mean by that is this. It's either telling people who don't know the gospel what the gospel is, or yourself or others learning to live out the reality of the gospel in your life. And I don't think I've learned anything in the last 25 years that is more important than that in terms of being able to share the gospel, being able to present a cohesive and coherent message of truth and hope and love to anyone that I meet. These guys had no training. They were fishermen, right? Right? They weren't specialists in the Old Testament. They weren't philosophers of religion. They were fishermen. But what was different about them? They had been with Jesus. And I would suggest to you that the most important thing that you can do to be effective in life is to spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Even today, I notice the difference when I spend time with Jesus and when I don't spend time with Jesus. And I was just sharing this with a friend recently. I have to be honest, there, there are days in my life when I would think about, for example, coming to the Word and prayer, and it felt like a chore. Because I was approaching this book for ideas, 
for rules and for any other... The, you've heard that the Bible is a training manual for life. Have you heard that? I want to invite you to throw that phrase out of your, out of your life forever. The Bible is a resource to help you connect with the God of the universe. You don't need a training manual. You need a Savior, right? You'll get the rules along the way. That's not an issue. You'll get the ideas. You'll get the concepts. They're going to come. But come here to meet Jesus. Come to prayer to be with Jesus. That is what changes your life. That is what makes me eager to come now once again. I used to come eager to this Bible because it was so interesting. That was the student in me. I love things that are interesting. Now I come to the Bible eager because the Lord is there. You understand what I'm saying? So these men had been with Jesus. They took note. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the, among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they called the men and told them not to preach the gospel. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? There's a whole sermon on that. You be the judges, but as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And they threatened them further, and they sent them home. Now, here's what's really cool about this. Peter and John go back to their own people and reported everything that happened. And when the people heard this, they raised their voices, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointing one. And in their minds, that's what just happened. You've got, uh, he mentions Herod and Pontius Pilate and the, the Gentiles and the, the, the Sadducees and the leaders. They're all conspiring against the Holy One. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. If you have a physical Bible, underline that. They uh, uh, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And look what happens. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Again, reminiscent of Mount Sinai. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I know a lot of us in this room, we want the Holy Spirit. We want more of the Holy Spirit. We want the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Does anyone want the power of the Holy Spirit today? Does anyone want the, the, the greater feeling of the Holy Spirit? Then you pray for boldness to speak the gospel because that's what God loves to respond to. And look what he does. He shakes the room, he fills them with the Spirit, and then they go and speak the word boldly. Because look, and I've used this analogy before, if you were, a, there, there's a cosmic battle going on, right? There are forces of evil that are opposed to the forces of God. And as soon as you kind of sign up for this thing called Jesus and faith and Christianity and what, you know, whatever names we're using, you are enlisting in that battle. It's not a flesh and blood battle. Where our enemy is... Our enemy is not in Washington or on Beacon Hill or in this neighborhood or anywhere here. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy. We're not called to fight against any of those people. We fight for those people, right? If you, got, if you were a commanding officer in any kind of military unit and you were worth anything, would you give all your resources to the people who are not fighting or the people who are fighting? You give it to the people who are fighting. God loves to pour out His Holy Spirit on people who want to boldly go and preach the Word of God, who want to boldly give a testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who want to uh, joyfully and excitedly stand firm for the truth of the gospel. They prayed... The room was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. 
I'm definitely going to run out of time, but we have one more I want to look at. <laughs> Acts 5. Well, this will be a short one. In Acts 5, the apostles, they have this really bad habit of healing people and getting themselves in trouble, right? Everyone wants to, we talked about this last week, everyone wants to be healing people. No one wants to go to jail, <laughs> right? But they're arrested and they're put in jail. And let's start in verse 19 of chapter 5. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So, all right, so they're in prison for preaching the gospel and healing people in the temple courts. And then in the middle of the night, the jail is opened, and the Lord tells them to go back to where they got in trouble. So this is such a great setup. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers could not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guards and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came in, Look, the men you put in jail are, are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. How discouraging would that be if you're in charge? <laughs> we arrested these guys yesterday. Now we have no idea where they are. But they're not hiding from us. They're not afraid of us. They're right back where they were yesterday. Doing the same thing they got arrested for. You have to be having one of these moments where you're like, ah, oh, oh, oy vey, right? I don't know if they actually said oy vey 2,000 years ago, but that's, you get the idea. They were upset probably. So they went and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. They've lost all leverage at this point. Their authority means nothing. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Like Peter's the one making them guilty of the blood of Jesus. Right? Yeah. What do you call that? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, I'm trying to think of that word when you... Anyway. <laughs> gaslighting. Yeah, this is gaslighting right here. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Man, this guy's bold. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit that God has given to those who obey him. Man, how would you like to pull that line out of your back pocket one day in your life? Just one time in your life. Like, I can't do what you're telling me to do. Because the God of the universe raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And I'm bearing witness to it, and so is the Holy Spirit. So back off. Do with me what you will. Now, it's so funny. They, they, don't, they don't do much to them at all. I mean, I think they, I think they beat them here. Um, yeah, verse 40. So basically, this Gamaliel, who's a, who's a Pharisee and who's a leader, he instructs them, look, if you, if you leave it alone and it's nothing, it'll just peter out. But if you keep attacking them, it's gonna, it's, they're going to become martyrs even more. And then, you know, it's better to just leave them alone. If God's behind it, it'll continue. If God's not behind it, it'll peter out. So they're like, okay, all right, fine. We won't do anything to them. We'll just beat them, right? We'll just beat them. That's, but we won't do anything to them. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus after they just said they were going to. Here it is. Another one to underline. Write this down in your notes. Underline it. Make this a life verse. It's a horrible life verse, but it's an amazing life verse. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. 
you put your faith in Jesus Christ, okay? His death, his resurrection, his gift of holiness and righteousness. When you put your faith in that, your sins are forgiven. And I believe, basically, that your eternal, your eternal salvation is secure, okay? So we're not talking about whether you go to heaven or not at this point. But I'll say this. Someone filled by the Holy Spirit shares the gospel. Someone filled by the Holy Spirit is bold. Someone filled by the Holy Spirit has supernatural wisdom to speak beyond their capacity, beyond their training, beyond their education. People filled by the Holy Spirit when we have the right mindset, when we have the right understanding, when we are not caught up in our modern perceptions of what comfort must be and what success must be and what faithfulness has to look like. Rejoice in the opportunity to be worthy. And it says suffering disgrace, but just keep in mind the way they suffered disgrace is they were publicly beaten. You understand? To suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus Christ. Paul counts it a blessing to, to continue or to fill up the sufferings of Christ that have not been done on behalf of the church in Colossians. Uh, the, the deacon Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit when he's being stoned to death for preaching the gospel and the, and the clouds of heaven part and he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father in heaven and like Jesus Christ, he says, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This is what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. I think the church often looks at this filling of the Holy Spirit and says, I want that power. I want that, those miracles. I want that whatever. But we're not willing to do what God pours out the Holy Spirit for. And I want you to understand this last thing. I said it's not about our salvation. And, but the second part of it is this. If you don't feel that boldness, I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel shame. I want you to get excited about the possibility of what can happen if you press into the Lord and ask for boldness. I want you to get eager about the possibility of this uh, greater filling, greater experience of God and the Holy Spirit uh, so that you can go and do what he's called you to do. We've talked a lot about what our calling is. We've talked a lot about what our purpose is, what our passion is. If you don't have a passion for the Lord and the, and the things of the Lord, it's not about, oh, I'm a horrible person and I need to, you know, whip myself or scorn myself or talk down to myself. No. Go to the Lord and seek it. Go to the Lord and find it. Seek that kingdom of heaven and all the other stuff will be added to you. So this is an invitation that we read in the book of Acts. I th again, like I think because of the way we look at this book, we, we find so much shame in here. Do you think for one second that God said, I'm going I'm to have my Holy Spirit inspire this book so I can shame billions of people? Do you think that's what he did? Can you imagine? Uh, let's see how many people I can shame. I know, I'll write a Bible. No. God is, God is, his heart is for you. His heart, he loves you. You're his son, you're his daughter. And he said, I'm going to have the Holy Spirit orchestrate this book so that you can be encouraged, so that you can be invited when you're feeling like you're not enough to step into more of me, right? To have more of me in your life. I believe, church, that if we seek the Lord, all these things will be added, right? We were just recently looking at that psalm. Was it 63? Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
You know, this is the kind of longing that God wants to cultivate in your heart and that when you respond to that, you will not believe the things that you will do when God is at work in and through you. And I truly believe that in this whole, this whole process of, of the kingdom of God coming to bear on the earth, right, we are the bottleneck. The Lord is not lacking in his desire, willingness, and ability to come through for his purposes. We are the bottleneck. And so look, today, you might be sitting here with a number of different thoughts in your mind. You might be thinking, I don't even, I don't even know if I really believe all this. Like this sounds, this sounds kind of like really flames of fire coming down from the sky and resting on people's heads and all of a sudden they speak in other languages. Really? Really, this guy was raised from the dead? Really, there's power there? You may not believe it. You may be here today saying, you know, I, I've, I, I believe it, and I've, I've said I was a Christian, but I just haven't experienced any of that stuff that you're talking about. Is that really true, or, or maybe is it only for other people and not for me? And then you may be sitting here in this room, and you're like, oh, I've, I've totally been there. I want that again. Or hey, by the grace of God, maybe you're here saying, yeah, that's me. I love living that life. It's fantastic. Preach it, brother. Right? But wherever you are, and maybe there's things I missed in that spectrum, I really do believe God's inviting you to a step deeper, to a step more. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, he's saying, look, the invitation's there. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ and you can experience this for yourself. That's what Peter said. He says the same Holy Spirit is available to all who put their trust in Him and obey Him. And that same promise is extended to you who say, I'm, I'm a, I believe, but I haven't, I haven't known that. But I will warn you, don't just pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would use you for ministry. Pray that God would make you bold to speak the truth of God. The Spirit will come. He's ready. I dare say he's waiting. Just like those apostles and disciples were waiting in the upper room, I kind of wonder if God's like, you know, hey, I'm here, I'm ready. Just let me know when you're ready. The ball's in your court kind of thing. And if you have that life right now, man, just more, 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 right? So church, as we, as we close out our service and as we continue to worship, we're just going to make some space up here to, uh, to respond. And, you know, there's no, this isn't like a magical place, right? We didn't put holy water on this part of the carpet or anything. But it's just this simple act of kind of like standing up before a community and saying, I need more of the Lord. I need more of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and not just for my sake, but for the work that he's called me to so that I can be kind of worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's pray. And as I'm praying, you can, if you want prayer or if you want to just kind of make a public step of faith to say, I want more, you just come right up here and we'll have some folks who will pray for you as well. And um, if you don't want prayer and someone comes to you, just say it, go like that, and, and they won't push. But if you do, just be there and we'll pray for you. But don't hesitate, church. If you are thinking, is that me? And then it's you, okay? And quite frankly, I, I would kind of hope that there's no one in this room who doesn't want more. So this isn't just like for a special few. This is for all of us. Amen? Lord God, you have given us an incredible invitation today. God, you've opened up for us uh, this, this place, this time to do a work in us. And God, we said earlier in the service that, that we want to use everything you've given us for your mission and for your glory. God, it's not about us. It has to be about you. So even, Lord, now as we consider our own response, Lord, take away that stuff that's all about us. 
and remind and realign our hearts to let it be all about you. That our hearts would be fixed on Jesus. That we would lean joyfully into this process of transformation that can be scary and hard and difficult, but with the joy of the Lord, we have strength to step into it in faithfulness and trust and love. God, we need more of you. We long for more of you. And even even the times when we do it for ourselves, because that's how we are. Even then, we know that it's you that we need. So God, break through in this moment. God, stir our hearts to respond in faith to this message. God, don't let us leave without getting the blessing that we need. Teach us to be like Jacob who wrestled with you and wouldn't let go until you blessed him. God, teach us to be about like that widow who won't stop badgering the judge until she gets her favorable decision. Lord, make us like little children who insist that our parents show us love and give us good gifts even to the point of getting in our face and grabbing our head looking us in the eyes. They don't give up until they get what they need. Lord, teach us to be like that. Lord, when we do that, respond in kindness. Be the good Father who knows how to give good gifts, and particularly the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, when we leave this place, let us not leave thinking, oh, that was a wonderful experience, but leave with an eagerness to do your will to do your work. We pray this in Jesus' name.